There are so many colorful figures in Megillah Esther. It's chock full of intrigue, of heroes, victims, villains, buffoons, clowns. Mordechai, of course, and Haman. Esther's great heroism. Vashti, we're not sure what to make of. Achashverosh, even Chazal had ambivalent opinions about. And of course, all the secondary figures. The big son in Teresh's the advisors to the king, of course, these unknown, Achashdranim b'nehra machim, the pachim, the sofrei ha-melech, charvona, hasach, hegai, srisa, nashim, what interesting personalities, zeresh. Hard to find a safer with as many personalities ascending the stage and descending the stage. But there's one person who makes a cameo appearance, according to Chazal, and he has little reason to be there. His name is Daniel. He lived 70 years early. He was exiled as part of that group of young rising stars, Nebuchadnezzar, relocated during the first exile of Yehoiakim. Of course, he had great visions, dreams, explaining people's dreams to Nebuchadnezzar or the entire Sefer of Daniel. But he's part of that earlier generation. Of course, he could have still been alive. He probably was in his teens, maybe, when he was exiled about 70 years early, so he's an older person. But Chazal are intent in finding a role for Daniel in Megillah Sester. Most famously, Charvona, who rats out on Haman in that very fateful Perak Zion, where Haman is finally hung, and he informs Achashverosh, who's absolutely furious at Haman about the eight skavah that Haman had erected, Chazal say Charvona is Daniel. Why is it so important for Chazal to find a role for Daniel in Megillah Sester? <coughs> Based on this Chazal, a very, very popular, probably the most tasty minhag of Perm developed. A lot of swirl about why we eat Azne Haman or Hamantash in on Purim. But the most halachically grounded reason is based on the Ramah. The Ramah says that the original Hamantashin, of course, were composed of poppy seeds, the classic Hamantashin. And this is, a, is reminiscent of Daniel. Daniel, in the early part of Sefer Daniel, is located in Nebuchadnezzar's palace. And Nebuchadnezzar offers some royal food, and Daniel resists, and instead smuggles in some seeds high in protein, and of course small enough to be camouflage and to be concealed and some guards help him smuggle him some seeds to survive. So because of Daniel's seeds, we eat hamantashen. Why is Daniel so central to the story of Megillah Sester that Chazal carve out a role or allocate a role for him and the minhag of hamantashen is reminiscent of Daniel's food habits in the beginning of Sefer Daniel. So I'd like to discuss five different parallels between Sefer Daniel and Megillah Esther. Of course, for those who hadn't had that much exposure to Sefer Daniel, Sefer Daniel details the story of Daniel. Many of his contemporaries, Hanani, Michelle, and Azari, appear in Sefer Daniel. The initial stages of the Galus under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar's successor, Belshazzar, abdicates the reign to Parasumadai in that famous um, banquet which Belshazzar conducts in which he uh, vandalizes 
the artifacts of the Beis HaMikdash for personal pleasure. Of course, Daniel is instrumental in interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, and he has his own vision of the four animals. It's a rough, quick summary, of course, be a little bit more specific as I itemize the various overlaps. I think there are five overlaps between, and of course, much, much of the events occur. I would say a couple, 20, 30, 40 years. It's hard to date Megillus Esther, but they, they certainly, Daniel is part of the Gullus, and the book ends, say for Daniel's book ends, a good 10, 15 years before Megillus Esther occurs. Remember, Megillus Esther occurs, according to Chazal, in the 18-year window between when Koresh authorizes the construction of the Beis HaMikdash, it's then suspended, and it's reauthorized by Dayavash the second. 18 years later, Megillus Esther occurs in that window. So Daniel's storyline ends around the time of Koresh I. So it's about 10, 15 years before Megillus Esther. Now, first of all, going back to that original scene of Sefer Daniel, where Daniel and a cadre of yuppies, young Jewish professionals, young rising Jewish stars, are situated or, or, or housed in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar's plan is to employ this young vanguard of Jewish leadership to help him transition the Jews from Israel into Babel culturally and ethnically. And if he can just retrain the young leadership to be more Babylonian than they are Israelite, then they'll help the older Jews and the refugee Jews become accustomed to life in Babel. So Nebuchadnezzar wasn't interested only in vandalizing and murdering the Jews, but he was interested in relocating the population to Babel and having them become absorbed in Babylonian culture. And to this end, he selects this young group of rising Jewish leaders. And he wants to change and alter their national identity, their sense of self. And part of this is he offers them Babylonian regal or royal food to get them trained in high cuisine and Babylonian manners and etiquette. And there's no indication from the first parak in Daniel that describes this story that the food is non-kosher. It seems as if the food is completely edible. It's bread, it's wine, it's, again, the wine could have been problematic, but it's regular food. He's not serving them chazir or pork or basar b'chala. And yet Daniel resists. And he defies Nebuchadnezzar. He refuses to eat the pat bag hamelech, the bread of the king, and it appears that Daniel refuses to be denatured culturally. He realizes that part of the struggle to maintain his Judaism outside of Eretz Yisrael is not just how many halachos he'll maintain, but what will his identity be. And the minute he begins to eat Babylonian bread, not just Babylonian bread that you'd buy in the Kasbah, but Babylonian bread that's culturally iconic, he could abdicate identity because a Jew is not just a religious machine performing ritual, but is also a human being with Jewish identity. And we've lost so much of that identity without land, without sovereignty, without monarchy, without army, without flag. We would lost it all. And he's fighting for the maintenance of Jewish identity. And I've spoken about this in other contexts, about the role of Hebrew throughout this period and how so many Sfarim and Tanakh are not written in Hebrew and Ezra's role in rehabilitating the Hebrew language and how that factors into Megillah's Esther. 
But one thing is clear. Part of the struggle and part of the challenge and part of the perhaps failure initially of the Jewish people that invites this genocidal plot the Gemara says in Megillah, with Haminim of Rabbi Shimon Baruchai asked him, why were the Jews threatened with annihilation? And Rabbi Shimon Baruchai turned to them and said, well, what do you think? And they all responded because they participated in Achashverosh's meal. And Achashverosh's meal is very structurally and narratively similar to Nebuchadnezzar's meal and food apportioning in the beginning of Daniel. And it's clear that Achashverosh's meal also served kosher food. It's clear from the literary reading because... There's a lot of multiculturalism and, and acceptance at that meal, and everyone had their everyone had types of food they sought, and Chazal amplified this, and presumably the Jews were allocated their own kosher food, and Chazal are even more specific about Kedash Torah, the wine was kosher, Lashon of the Gemara, and um, there's a story where Haman tried to demonstrate the disrespect of the Jews to Achashverosh, so he had Achashverosh touch their wine and witness how the Jewish people discarded the wine because it was the wine that a guy had touched. So evidently the food was, as we would say, glad kosher, and it's not really about eating food that's non-kosher or that's prohibited, but about indulging too deeply into Persian culture, especially at a time when Jews were fighting for Jewish identity in Israel and laying their lives on the line. So essentially, Daniel takes that first stand. Hard to know exactly when, 50, 60 years before Megillah's Esther, right when he is relocated from Israel to Nebuchadnezzar's palace, and that's really part of the drama of Megillah's Esther, not just the drama of whether the Jews will daven for Teshuva and for HaKadosh Baruch Hu's intercession, but whether they will maintain their Jewish identity by gathering as Jews and facing shoulder to shoulder, facing this uh, national assault. So it's the cultural defiance of Daniel, specifically captured by the seeds that he eats as opposed to the Babylonian bread, which is enshrined in Hamantashen, the Jewish food we eat on Purim. And that's one point of overlap and one reason that Daniel is such a celebrity in Megillah's Esther. Of course, the more obvious an apparent one is Daniel's rise to power within the court and within the palace of Nebuchadnezzar and ultimately Belshazzar at that party. And essentially, Daniel is associated in Chazal with Yosef, not just because they thrived politically in foreign lands, but because they interpreted dreams. Yosef interpreted the dreams to Paro. Daniel interpreted the dreams primarily to Nebuchadnezzar. The famous dream is the dream of the statue composed of different metals. There's also a dream of a tree. And then Daniel has his own dream. So Yosem and Daniel are very, very deeply linked. But yes, there is a very similar personality to both Daniel and to Yosef. And as much as the Jews are now forlorn and destitute in Galus, they still affect their world. And that's a sub-drama of Megillah's Esther. The primary drama of Megillah's Esther is a parochial drama. What happened to the Jewish people in Galus? Will HaKadosh Baruch Hu renagle his covenant? Or will he maintain his covenant with his people as 
angry as HaKadosh Baruch Hu was with the Jewish people after our repeated betrayals and our be, be treated, uh, repeated infidelities, Megillus Esther was a Harsina-like moment to reaffirm the bris. But there's a sub-drama, and that's Achashverosh's rule and influence doesn't produce any moral welfare, doesn't advance humanity, it just leads to partying and hedonism, taxation, this stiff taxation, obviously, to pay for the parties, and this moral um, chaos and moral dysfunction and financial collapse. The, 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 the kingdom just can't bear the weight of Achashverosh is bleeding the country just for personal pleasure. And Esther provides some degree of relief, and she stabilizes the kingdom, and we can't just look internally to appreciate the turnaround and the transition of Megillus Esther, but there's a general calm that descends upon the kingdom, the Persian Empire. Of course, this leads to the great rise of the great Persian Empire, and it's traced back to Esther's rise, the same way that Yosef stabilizes the world that is beset or besieged by famine. Esther stabilizes the world that is beset by moral um, apathy and by hedonism and by genocide and by murder. And she has a calm and settling effect. And that's why it's so important to see all the people. Uh, to see the glory that Mordechai achieves. And Mordechai and people are are ad, uh, admiring Mordechai, and there's adulation and support, not just within the Jewish community, because there is an impact that the Jew has upon his surroundings, and the impact is captured by the parallel between Daniel and Esther, or the broader parallel between Yosef, Daniel, and Esther. The third parallel is, of course, Daniel's great Messiah's Nefesh. And in this case, of course, Daniel is parallel, not with Yosef, but with Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and their descent into the Kivshan Ha'esh, in defiance of Nebuchadnezzar's decree to bow down to his towering idol. And there are numerous, numerous textual parallels between Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and Daniel. But Daniel, Davins, I'll speak about this in a moment, and as a punishment for his davening, of course, there are people that are that are instigating against Daniel, and there's a lot of instigation in Daniel, there's a lot of instigation in Megillah Sester, people who are hateful of the Jewish people and instigating the authorities against the Jews, fomenting anger and discrimination. But as a punishment for his tefillah, for defying the ban of the king against tefillah, Daniel is flung famously into the Gov Ha'arayos, into the den of lions, and he escapes unharmed. And he's Moser Nefesh, and he's willing to sacrifice his life on behalf of not just his own relationship with the Kaddish Baruch Hu, but the tefillah that he davens is a tefillah for Am Yisrael, for the restoration and rejuvenation of the Jews back to their homeland. So for him, Messiah's Nefesh is on behalf of Am Yisrael. And you can hear the resonant echo of Daniel in Esther's statements, Kasher Avadati Avadati. Esther is willing to lay her own life on the line. That's the great drama of Perakei, the, the great drama of Esther entering the inner courtyard of Achashverosh under threat of death because the needs of Am Yisrael are far more significant than her personal security and her personal safety and the perils which she may invite.
So the Mesiris Nefesh of Esther in particular is highlighted by the Mesir, or at least paralleled by the Mesiris Nefesh of Daniel. So he becomes the, the paradigm or the precedent. The fourth point of overlap is between Daniel, <coughs> excuse me, and Mordechai and Esther. Daniel Davins, and much of his trilos, the vidui, the trina, l'chashem, hatzdaka, t'lanabashi sapanem, towards the end, I think around Paragzayin, much of that becomes incorporated into our tachanun. Today's a Monday, I'm recording this on a Monday, we just recited the, the long tachanun of Hurachum, and it's taken largely from Daniel, from Ezra, from Nehemiah. And we take davening for granted. But to frame the importance of Daniel's davening, davening obviously played a much less significant role in the days of the first base of Mikdash. The avodah component of a person's avodah Hashem was manifest through korbanos, through tending the base of Mikdash, delivering korbanos, witnessing the ceremonies. There were obviously tefillos, and Shlomo Melch is aware of tefillos, and tefillos can get avos tikkunim. So tefillos are not just a fallback or a or a supplement after the disappearance of Karbanos, but there's no question that without Karbanos, Tvila occupies a more central role and has to be revamped and reimagined and restructured. And that's why the Anshay Knesset Hagadola played such a crucial role in the early stages of the second Beis HaMikdash, because it was apparent even though the Beis HaMikdash had been constructed that this was not a Mikdash built to last and that inevitably Gullus would recur. And during those stages, Tila would be crucial and, and pivotal to the world of Avoda. And Daniel really is the first person to reimagine Tfila in the wake of the, the nightmare of the Churban Beis HaMikdash. And his Tfilas aren't just in acknowledgement of the absence of Kurbanos, but they refer and they address the failures, the guilt, the remorse, the regret, the shame of national failure which led to the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash. So, and Daniel recognizes the value of tefillah and the, the importance, the seminal role that tefillah will play, and therefore he's willing to sacrifice his life on behalf of tefillah. As it were, you could question Daniel's decision if tefillah is not one of the Gimel Chamuros. It's not as if Nebuchadnezzar had decreed. Actually, let me correct myself. The decree against Tfilah was not issued by Nebuchadnezzar. It appears in Daniel Perak Vav. And at this point, Malchus Bavel has already collapsed. Malchus Bavel has already disappeared. And it's Daryavash who issues this ban on Tfilah, the ban which Daniel defies, and the defiance lands him in the den of alliance. So had you interviewed Daniel, you could have questioned, after all, why why are you endangering your life? This isn't Yahari Veliavar. Dayavash isn't forcing you to violate Avodazara, Gilu Arayos, or Shvichos Damim. But he recognizes it as a classic moment of Shas Hashmad, a pivotal moment in the evolution and the sustenance of the Jewish Masara. And sometimes those pivotal moments require Mesiris Nefesh al Hashem. Remember Hanani, Mishal, and Azariah? They were challenged to perform Avodazara. So for them, they the answer was obvious. It was a no-brainer. Of course, you're most inevitable, Kiddush Hashem, but Daniel sensed the evolving role of Tfilah in the exile of Babel and now the exile of Parasimadai. So those are four parallels between Daniel and Megillah's Esther.
Again, just to summarize, one is the cultural defiance of Daniel, as expressed by consuming seeds and lentils. The cultural defiance, which Am Yisrael initially fails at by partaking of Achashverosh's Seuda, the maintenance of Jewish identity. Number two, the ability of a Jew, even in Galus, even having been expelled from his land, not just to survive, but to shape the world, shape it morally, shape it politically, shape it in, in advancing human prosperity. Number three, the precedent of Mesiris Nefesh. And when you think about it, we live in the post Akiva era, the post-Holocaust, post-Inquisition. We have ample examples and, and precedents for Kiddush Hashem and Mesiris Nefesh or Kiddush Hashem. If you take a look at Esther, how many did she really have? It's really Daniel and Hanan and Michelle and Azar. You can imagine Esther stealing herself and reinforcing her conviction by imagining Daniel in the Gov Harayos. And then Daniel's reformulation of tefillah as a central component of Avodah Hashem, absent of Beis HaMikdash. I think the final parallel between Daniel and between Megillah's Esther is the, or are the, the visions of Daniel. Again, one is a vision that he receives of Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the idol with the four metals, and then, of course, Daniel's personal vision in Perak Zion of the four animals. And without detailing the differences, the similarities are that each of them have four components. The four components represent four different empires, the empire of Bavel, the empire of Parasamadai, the empire of Yavan, and the empire of Rome or Edom. And these are the four empires that will dominate the world, that will challenge the world, that will, the Jewish people will struggle with because the Jewish people represent the, the moral trajectory and the moral narrative of this world. And each of these empires uh, represents a, a moral and theological challenge to humanity. That's why the Jews are front and center in this process. And... What's important is that Nebuchadnezzar, excuse me, that Daniel, and though Daniel doesn't specifically itemize Paras Madai, the consensus opinion in Chazal is that the second animal relates to Paras Madai. The first one is Nebuchadnezzar, the third is Yavan, the fourth is Malchus Edom the fourth terrifying or fearsome animal. And you wouldn't have initially acknowledged or recognized or even identified Parasamadai as in the same league as Nebuchadnezzar. Certainly they hadn't yet seen Yavan in Rome, but looking backwards. At certainly at the stage of Megillus Esther, their empire was nascent. I mean, Achashverosh's first building his empire across 127 regions. And Daniel had already informed them that this was not, as we would say, a flash in the pan or some 15 minutes of glory, but this would lead to a world-dominant empire which would become Persia. And that helped Mordechai and Esther frame the face-off with Persia and the face-off with Achashverosh in historical terms. This wasn't just a miracle in a vacuum, as if some indiscriminate, arbitrary nation threatened the Jewish people and HaKadosh Baruch Hu intervened. We would not establish a holiday for that narrative alone. But it had broader historical consequences, just 
as it had broader theological consequences about HaKadosh Baruch Hu's relationship with us in Gullus, it had broader historical consequences, in particular the union between Persia and Amalek, between Haman and Achashverosh, and Haman and Amalek exploiting larger geopolitical forces to persecute the Jews and to try to eliminate Chassel and the Jewish people. And they knew that this was part of history. They knew this was part of the four animals that they were not just living through, and they were willing to take steps and adopt measures and sacrifice their lives because they knew that they were playing on the historical field, on the historical landscape, and they needed Daniel's um, interpretations and his dreams to provide that backdrop. So I think these are the five overlaps between Daniel's life and Daniel's experiences in Michaelis Esther, which is why Chazal are so interested in finding a persona that Daniel can essentially adopt or that can be seen as a pseudo-Daniel in the story of Miguel Esther.